Good afternoon from the west coast of the United States. I hope you're having a good day. It's midday here or wherever or whenever you're watching this because it is on the internet and I guess stuff stays on the internet forever. So um, I want to introduce my guest and then uh, we'll jump into the conversation. I'll give it a little intro and then we'll go from there. Dr. Travis Dickinson, thank you for joining us today. Uh, it's my pleasure, Arthur. Good to see you. You too. Um, Travis, I'm going to jump into your intro. I'm just going to read the intro that you have written on your website. I like your website, by the way, I must say. Uh, I don't know if you made it yourself or you had someone make it. Well, it's, but... it's newly refreshed, too. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's good. And then we'll talk about this book you just wrote, and then you got another one coming out. You've, yep. you've had a busy COVID season, it seems like. Yes. Uh, you've used it well. <laughs> uh, unlike being on uh, Netflix 24-7, you've probably right. done a lot more with your time. So... Uh, let me just give an introduction uh, to Dr. Dickinson. So uh, he's from New Jersey, and so he decided to fly all the way to Alaska and go to Bible college there. <laughs> Man, what were Makes you sense. thinking? Yeah, you're right. It's like, let's let's go from the green state to, to the, the white state. <laughs> the garden state, yes. <laughs> yeah. um, so... It's very lush. I've been to Jersey. It's an extremely lush place. The green yeah. is a different color green than it is here in Southern California, I must say. Okay. It's a much richer green. So yeah. I, I enjoy that kind of green because I enjoy gardening. But So after Bible college, um, you went on to do a MA in Christian apologetics from Biola University. And then you went back because you love school so much and did an MA in philosophy and because you love school so much, you went back and did an MA and a PhD from the University of Iowa. And uh, you specialize in the philosophy of religion and epistemology, correct? Yeah. And whatever's related to that, which is right. everything. Which because is philosoph everything. philosophers study everything. <laughs> right. That, that's the yes. cool thing about doing philosophy. You get to talk about everything. Uh, and you kind of need to in some <laughs> ways. So it's sort of... You need to sort of have facility with all of it to talk about any of it. Doesn't that at one point or another as a professional philosopher get overwhelming for you? It's very overwhelming and even intimidating. Um, right. So when you give a paper or make a presentation or even in class, there's questions that are coming up that are just not areas you focused on, but you see how important and relevant they are and so that can be tough so i guess developing the discipline of saying i don't know is especially important for philosophers that is important yes very good a and i'll get back to you oh <laughs> <laughs> let, me, let me think about that yeah so um usually when we start these interviews i ask my guests to tell us some practical wisdom some advice they have for people who might be starting off kind of with, with their bachelor's degree or are thinking about getting into a uh, you know, graduate program or uh, into their PhD programs, uh, what, what are some advice that you would give our listeners? I would say take it one step at a time. Um, I think we often try to think all the way down the line of wherever we're, we think we're going and we lose sight of the stuff that's right there before us. And so um, take it one step at a time, one degree at a time, one class at a time, even at least one semester at a time. 
and just sort of see what doors open and what the Lord does in your life and that sort of thing. So, Okay, so I'm, I'm going to ask about your personal life. You have four children. Yes. Right? I think it's three daughters, one boy, correct? You got it. Okay. Uh, now, when you were doing all this education stuff, uh, were you married? Did you have kids? What was what was that? And, and what were the yes. dynamics in that? So I was a little odd with others that were in my PhD program because there was some, there was maybe one or two others that were married, but none that had kids. And so I started grad school single in the first degree there, the first master's degree, got married in between the next one, <laughs> and then did that married, and then did the all the work at University of Iowa with kids. How many kids did you have when you were doing your PhD program? We started with one started my phd program with one kid and then we every two years we had kids so i guess we at the end of it we had three okay three girls so it's it's possible it's possible in fact i loved it because it was a good foil for me i would go to class and have all this you know technical you know stuff and uh that was just filling my head and that sort of thing and then would come home and like throw kids around <laughs> yeah that, that, kids and you know so like for me it was good and it's kept me motivated whereas there was others that um were single had all the time in the world but they really didn't make much progress but for me it was like i gotta put bread on the table and so it was very motivating to sort of keep up with what i was there to do so uh on your uh on your bio this really stood out to me. Uh, you wrote on your website, you wrote, I once had some hobbies, but, <laughs> <laughs> but now I spend most of my time exploring the good life with my wife and four children. Yes. What, what do you mean by exploring the good life? Yeah. And, and what hobbies did you have to give up? Well, all of them. No. Uh, yeah. No, I think that... The beautiful thing about having a family is you kind of have this uh, community built into your life. And so many people have fortunately sort of ignore that community for other, uh, you know, things and pursuits and so on. And I don't know. I just think that that's what I've been primarily commissioned to do is be a dad and a husband mm. and, and do it well. And, and it's a lot of fun. Yeah, great. Um, Paul Copan, who wrote the foreword to your book that we're going to be yes. talking about. Uh, I was once talking to him and the difficulties about the PhD program and uh, thinking about it. And he was like, no, no, you can do it. You can do it. I, I did it. <laughs> so yeah. he's like, you just need to be very disciplined, uh, I it suppose. Is. to. It, and it's a crazy time. So I think that's definitely something everybody needs to be aware of that uh, – it's hard to just keep it all together. I mean, I so I was doing full-time school and thankfully I was able to focus on it full-time. My wife did not work, so she stayed home with the kids. Um, and I just worked like three jobs to make it all happen. Hmm. Um, I was able to teach at the university as part of my PhD program that brought in the funding. I was, I was teaching adjunctively at a neighboring sort of, a, I think it was a community college and then I also worked at a hotel. I was like a banquet server. So working weekends, w weddings till two or three in the morning. But we just made it work. It was crazy. Wow.
Yeah. So uh, you've written this book and yeah. uh, it's taken you one year, two years, five years. <laughs> Probably about two years of really focused on it. I mean, focused on it as well as having to, you know, teach full time and some of that. I had a bit of a sabbatical year that I was able to use for it. But um, yeah, probably about two years of time. Hmm. Um, now, I said this before we started the interview. Uh, I'm I'm not done reading the book, partly because I tried to buy it on Amazon and it was sold out, which I yeah. guess it's good news for you. Uh, I, I hope it is. <laughs> I'll take it as good news. Yeah, <laughs> it is. But uh, so because I have Prime, I was just like, okay, I'll wait. And then I think last week I was like, oh, it's it's up. So I bought it. It arrived. And um, I thought I was buying a much thinner book because it's so <laughs> slick and cool looking. Uh, right. And then when it arrived and then I opened it and my wife was there, I opened it and picked it up. I said, this book is thicker than I thought and heavier than I thought. Yeah. Um, so that it's heavy because of the really awesome paper it's printed on, right? Not, it's like, right, right. It doesn't like metaphysically, the words don't have some kind of a weight to it. That's or right. That, that would be weird. Right. Uh, but so I've been reading through it and I must say that I haven't read a book like this. Okay. Um, I have not read a book where it aims at combining this. And maybe there is, there's definitely two and maybe there's three different subjects because I think you're doing hermeneutics. Uh, you're definitely doing logic. I, for, there's no way you can flip through this book and not realize you're doing logic because mm-hmm. there's truth tables in it and there's yeah, all yeah. sorts of logical um breakdowns in it which again it's not a book that i've really seen christians kind of developing this book um where they're doing that sort of logic in it um and then but you you get to speak about um jesus and his person and intellectual pursuits and stuff like that so the question is why right there's tons of books being written uh there there's really cool books that encourage kind of a critical uh, analysis or christians to be yeah. thinking critically and i like your subtitle here by the way thinking critically and the second part i like the most thinking christianly yeah uh, and we'll talk about what the difference is between between those things uh so why write this book yeah so for me uh, an important part of my journey certainly was being challenged to approach god in an intellectual way um this is a lot of those of us that came out of talbot were probably uh, sort of impacted in some way by J.P. Moreland's "Love God with All of Your Mind." Was that important for you? And oh yeah, I, yeah. Bef- bef- I read it before I got there. I mean, it's part yeah. of the reason why I got there. That's <laughs> I, it's most of the guys that I know that went through Talbot have that same story, especially the sort of pastor types that mm-hmm. weren't necessarily looking to do academic philosophy they came across this book and it was like lights went off it was inspiring and it's like okay i want to devote myself to whatever this looks like Mm -hmm. to follow god with all of my heart soul and mind so that was part of it for me and also sort of a component of that is the dallas willard sort of idea that sees jesus as the smartest human being who's ever lived um seeing him as a brilliant thinker and that we should model our, not just our sort of moral lives, right? That almost everybody sort of thinks that, or every Christian thinks that, is mm-hmm. that we should try to live the sort of moral life that Jesus lived. But 
uh, almost none of them. <laughs> like it's very rare to find somebody that thinks that we should also model our lives after him intellectually. Yeah, and you say you said that in in the book, and I I'm, I'm pretty sure I've read Dallas say this somewhere. Yeah, because I I think it's from him. Is that uh, people when you when you say Jesus, people usually the first thing that comes to their mind is he was a good man. Yeah, even if they don't believe in him, it, even if they're not Christians, it was just like he was a good man. But very rarely is it our initial reaction to think that Jesus was a smart man. Yeah, and a like a thinker that he gave us a sort of. Uh, intellectual tradition from which we operate, um, much like a Plato or Aristotle or Kant or somebody. Yeah. And so, so Jesus is alive during a very lively, like philosophical time period, right? I mean, it's it's not like. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if we would say he's like completely disassociated with whatever's going on in the philosophical world. Um, it gets hot in my studio, and I guess it does funny stuff. Oh yeah. Uh, so for just a second, but I got you now. Yeah. Um, how much of that do you think Jesus actually kind of heard about, interacted with um, these these kind of philosophical traditions? Predominantly, most likely Platonism, uh, or even yeah, Neoplatonism. Yeah, I'm I'm not sure. Um, he, we know he didn't study formally, or or at least that's you know yeah. sort of what scripture at least implies, because there are plenty of times where people are sort of blown away by his teaching, in part because who's this guy from Nazareth, you know, Carpenter's son, who is able to teach on this level and this with this sort of intimacy of biblical knowledge and so on. Um, and they're astonished by that. And so probably he didn't study formally, but a Jewish you know, sort of Jewish boy growing up in that time would have studied somewhat with a rabbi, a sort of local rabbi, and, but mostly to to study the Bible and those sorts of things. I don't think, you know, Plato would have been figuring into that probably, but who knows, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, do, do you hold to a view that Jesus might have been uh, bilingual, trilingual? Like, do you, like... Uh... I have no idea. Okay. Because right, some folks, no, the thing is that sometimes you know we get these these statements in the Bible that sound really good in Greek, uh, where it was like, well, did did he maybe even partially communicate that stuff in Greek, and that that was the right. language everybody was speaking and what's going on. So I, I think that would have been interesting if he if he knew Greek, maybe he might have at least come across the ideas. We know Paul for sure did. I yeah. mean, that's uh, yes. that's pretty clear that Paul interacted yes. with these ideas. Yeah, um, I want to. So Paul Copan makes this comment in the book, and and I think, because I want to recommend people buy this book, right? It's it's like I said, it's good, and there there probably isn't many like it. So get it, and I think it's on Amazon now. If not, where else can they buy it? Uh, pretty much anywhere now. Yeah. So there was a brief moment where the supply was uh, a little limited, but it looks to me that everywhere has it. Okay. Well, you can buy it everywhere, Good quantities. Yeah. Um, so Paul Copan in his foreword says, Travis Dickinson has written an important book reminding us of how many professing believers in the church have, in various ways, lost connection with the head, with Jesus Christ. And I like what he's doing there. Right? 
they have failed to see Jesus as the most brilliant thinker ever, a master logician, and the wisdom of God in human form. Yeah. Um, a master logician that didn't formally study logic and never wrote logic books. Right. What, what does he mean by that? Well, the way that Willard, I think, would put it, and the way I would put it, is that Jesus had a mastery of logic, not in a sort of formal sense, in the sense that he's like doing what uh, a sort of like philosophy of logic or spelling out a logical system. Rather, it's something more like he's able to make these unassailable uh, arguments as people challenge him and as he's just laying out the his teaching and and you know kind of uh, making arguments for a variety of claims throughout his ministry okay so it's it's a mastery of logic again the reason why I think some people don't see Jesus and Willard makes this point too that they don't see Jesus as a brilliant thinker because he doesn't sort of give us a system like the great sort of system builders like a plato or aristotle or a mm. even more contemporary figures um you know a sort of descartes or a john locke or somebody you you just see him using logic to make these claims and and these arguments and people are constantly astonished by jesus's ability to do so that that's one of the things that really jumped out to me, as I start looking at it, is how often people are just astonished by him, mm. and it's and it's definitely partly that he's doing signs and wonders and miracles and healings, but those are really more at a minimum. Uh, more often than not, they're astonished just by his teaching. Again, part of it is because he's not, uh, you know, a formal rabbi that kind of a thing and he's not citing formal rabbis um, or citing rabbis in a formal way he's just teaching and he's saying truly i say yeah. unto you <laughs> uh, um but it's got to be something more than that it seems to me because anybody could say truly i say unto you but people were astonished by the logic of this i think i think they were astonished by a lot of like it's a bigger picture and it's more complex than that but part of the picture is that they're astonished by the logic of the claims he makes. Okay, it's very interesting because there's a passage in the book of Acts, I think it's like four something, where it says that the people saw that the disciples of Jesus were uneducated, but they knew yeah. they had been with Jesus, mm. right? It's, it's like this, this tradition kind of you're talking about is that Jesus is not formally educated. Um, it's not just with him. It's with his direct disciples. Like they, yeah. people looked at them and said, hey, these, these guys are fishermen and whatever. Um, and they're not, they don't have a formal education, rabbinic tradition, uh, rabbinic education. Right. But they had been with Jesus. And so these intellectual abilities, you can say, or development, I mean, three years hanging out with Jesus every day. Yeah. That's, that's quite the education, I would say. Uh, I it mean, is. And I think that's a good, a really interesting point because you've got always the, I think the reaction is something like, well, Jesus is omniscient. Of course he's brilliant. <laughs> you know, so like if somebody is going to take seeing, you know, Jesus as brilliant intellectual and bring these things together, 
it's typically that they just see him as omniscient in his you know divine nature mm-hmm. but what's nice about the example you bring up is that even his apostles or his disciples are sort of seen as these like where did where are they getting this intellectual prowess from um so that it's and again i don't think that's a good sort of excuse like we should still follow jesus as a brilliant thinker despite the fact that he's omniscient yeah um we in the same way that we should follow him morally like we're never going to measure up to him in moral perfection in the same way we won't measure up to him in omniscience but the point is that if he's lord of our lives we would follow him in these ways yeah i suppose it might even be like theologically undermining his full humanity because scripture and again this is something you go into the book that scripture speaks about jesus growing yeah up physically and then also growing in wisdom or growing in knowledge yeah so the passage that kind of i i don't know if it's the first time but it's it's one of the first times in which people are astonished by jesus and it all comes when jesus is supposed to be with his family on the way back to nazareth this is in luke chapter 2 and he's not with them and so they go back to jerusalem trying to find <laughs> the 12 year old jesus <laughs> right and they find him sitting uh with the teachers at the temple uh, sort of like religious scholars mm. sitting among them asking questions um, and they're and the these religious leaders are astonished by his answers and I just think that's so, and that's where then you get that he's growing in stature and mm-hmm. wisdom and so it seems that he does grow in this um, and I don't think that's a problem for omniscience Rather, I think it's something like in his humanity, he is growing in his expression and his sort of, especially in wisdom, we think of that as a kind of skill. And that is something that Jesus learned in a sense, even though it doesn't take away at all, in my view, uh, his omniscience. Yeah, which uh, for me, it's uh, since Jesus, you lived an authentically human life, um, then he he grew in all sorts of ways and maybe right. he was even disadvantaged in all sorts of ways compared to some of us yeah um we have information at our fingertips jesus didn't right right um and so uh essentially we have no excuse <laughs> in in this idea of whether it's aiming and trying to be more like jesus in our in- intellectual pursuits and then aiming or or even the disciples uh, for that matter, right? Like they, we are way more, I would say, privileged and with the content yeah. and stuff we have in our hands uh, to aim and be individuals like this sort. So <clears throat> you give some historical examples that I think are very important uh, that Christians have kind of maybe ignored uh, and and pulled back from these intellectual pursuits. Yeah. Um, give a couple of those. Uh, if they're at the top of your head, uh, yep. if you can. And uh, yeah, go go with that and I'll ask a follow-up. So yeah, there's a real long tradition, in fact, of people who are not just um, <clears throat> sort of doing the Christian thing, but they are really cultivating and, and shaping culture in various ways. 
And so you've got people like uh, Dante writing his Divine Comedy. Uh, it's considered one of the greatest works of literature ever. Um, you've got guys like, one of my favorite actually is uh, Isaac Watts, who many of your listeners would know that he wrote Joy to the World and some other hymns. But he also wrote, uh, right, a <laughs> intro to logic textbook. And the title of it is awesome. I've got it here. It's uh, Logic, colon, or the right use of reason in the inquiry after truth with a variety of rules to guard against error in the affairs of religion and human life as well as in the sciences. That's his title. <laughs> I don't know what the subtitle was, but it's oh, got to be awesome. I know. Huh? Right. So you've got a guy like that who's a musician who's also writing a logic textbook. Hmm. Um, you know, so you just have, and you've got all the, the various uh, big figures in the scientific revolution, uh, the sort of uh, Bacon, Boyle, Kepler, and others um, who don't see their Christian faith as any kind of, uh, you know, roadblock or you know they're not stumbling over it in this makes sense for them to pursue their faith as they pursue science and in these other pursuits and i think the part where thinking cr critically and thinking christianly comes together is that you have to do that pretty intentionally like if you're to think christianly in the, about the world you've got to think critically like this doesn't just happen by accident it's a very reflective thing where we are clear on what we believe and what we think, um, what it is to be Christian, our Christian values. And then we live that out Christianly when we take those things and apply them to the world as we find it. Okay, so we would put this into the same category, I guess, that a lot of people would be used to. is something like reading your Bible, disciplining yourself to read your Bible every single day. So what you're essentially saying is that, well, you got, if you want to think Christianly and then with that Christ, uh, critically, you got to discipline yourself to grow in those areas. Uh, yeah. In, in, in that critical aspect. It, it, and I think it goes beyond, or, or certainly that would be part of it. Um, but it's also, it seems to me, part of it, or, or I should say, could be that we read our Bible every day, but don't kind of apply it and live it out and so on but you can't do this work without being clear what the bible has to say yeah. of course so it's a piece of it so, so i guess that's that that's the reason why you spend I, I guess the second half of your book like dealing entirely with logic you're right well I, and part of what i'm saying is that this is important for our faith um that in in sort of following jesus in this way that we would not just, uh, you know, sort of have our sacred lives on Sunday morning, hmm. maybe Wednesday night, <laughs> you know, depending on your church or whatever. Yeah, yeah, mine's but Thursdays. Would, but... <laughs> you know, we would sort of like have our faith with us in all that we do, all of our pursuits. Um, that takes a lot of careful thinking of just what it looks like to live out our particular calling in a in a you know, specifically Christian way. Um, I think there is what it is to be a Christian business person or a Christian plumber or, and I think it means more than just 
wearing Christian t-shirts and, mm. you know, that kind of stuff. It is bringing your faith to bear on those pursuits that really are obviously important to you. It's your career. Um, there's a way, anyway, there's no, there's no pursuit that isn't, uh, affected by our faith in a way that's, but that's going to take a lot of reflective work. And part of that is to understand the principles of logic and critical thinking. And so what are some of those principles that you go into the book? Yeah. So some of what I do there is I look at how to, uh, construct a good argument. And we don't mean by argument, like what happens from time to time, you know, <laughs> with your spouse, maybe, or that angry person at work or something. Mm. What we mean by an argument here is where we lay out a case for a claim. Um, we sort of think about what are the reasons that we have for believing it. And so part of what we do in logic is we try to formalize it so that it really lays bare what the logic of the argument is. And so you often see it as like premise one, premise two, and a conclusion. We call that a syllogism. And so part of, again, what that logic bit is going to be is how to do that, how to look at the sort of standards of what makes for a good argument. And I look at a couple different ones. Uh, those that are philosophy or logic students will know these terms, but, um, you know, what I talk about is the deductive standards mm -hmm. for logic, which is where our premises guarantee the conclusion if they're true, or what I call non-deductive, it's sometimes called inductive standards, which is where the premises, if true, make likely the conclusion. Hmm. Okay. And so there's sort of ways in which doing both of those in the right way and, and, and what it really does is gives us tools to be able to evaluate the arguments that we get. And so what I'll often do with my students is I'll have them take an argument or a claim and take this sort of machinery or tools and, and try to say, like, why specifically? Like, you don't believe the conclusion, perhaps, but why? Like, wh why is the premises that are being given, like, why aren't they compelling or, or good at the end of the day. And so we take these standards of logic and apply to it. Okay, so it's it's very interesting here because the, these would be the tools that would be applied to like traditional arguments for God's existence and stuff like that. It, it sure. seems to me that you kind of stay away from that. Um, and uh, so it would be the case, I mean, regardless of the conclusion, it could be the case where you, as a philosopher and as a Christian, there might be an argument for God's existence that you're just like, this is not a good one. Like, right. I like the conclusion. I like the fact that it concludes with That's God right. existing, but it's not a good argument. Right. Right. Absolutely. And we have to, I think we have to be honest about that. Um, because sometimes looking at those things honestly will be really helpful for us to clarify, like, okay, what are the reasons though? And again, this doesn't have to be just for our faith because that's, if I do stay away from that a little bit, it's because the stakes are pretty high with those arguments in a way. Um, and I, but I do want people to apply the principles to that for sure. But, you know, we just need to take that sort of one step at a time and be careful. But um, no, I think that if something is not uh, a good reason we should be the first. Again, this this isn't about winning arguments. I think that's the 
uh, a big difference too is that today like on twitter in those sorts of settings and political debates you know the cable news shows and things it's really about having the best zinger mm. and who can sort of put down somebody in this passive aggressive way and you know move on or whatever but if we're to really take this stuff seriously then we're going to be critical thinkers even about faith and evaluate these things in honesty mm. and say what is and what isn't a good argument and again to be able to have the machinery or tools to be able to do so okay so in this book you give a certain argument where uh you wrote the implied form of <clears throat> of this specific argument you just give but uh, the implied form of argument here is called the reductio ad absurdum mm -hmm. uh, and you go into some examples about jesus dealing with in a very conversational setting i mean no one's sitting there saying hey premise one premise two conclusion right. you know no one's doing that but they're definitely presenting an argument in which jesus is responding in a very, very concise he knows what's going on he knows the trap he knows the responses so can you give yeah. an example maybe one uh, where Jesus actually is practicing his his skill, his art of yeah. logic. Yeah, yeah. So uh, Matthew 22 is an important chapter, and it's one that I walk through. Uh, I think that's where the reductio comes up. But um, he's being challenged by Pharisees and Sadducees and the you know teachers of the law and so on. And uh, they're challenging him intellectually. Now, it's definitely the case that Jesus could, like, vaporize these guys. You know, <laughs> he could just, like, strike them with lightning or vaporize them or whatever. But he doesn't. He actually refutes them with argument and good logic. And so the the, the argument that people probably would be aware of, um, I don't have, have this right here in front of me, but the argument where Jesus has asked whether or not uh, people should pay taxes to Caesar. And then Jesus asks for the coin, of course, and asks whose picture it is, and they say Caesar's. And so I always imagine him like flipping it back to a, <laughs> and saying, so pay, you know, pay what Caesar's to him and to God, to God, you know, that kind of thing. Um, it's an intellectual argument. And it's right because if he had said, well, yes, you should pay taxes he'd have been in trouble with the religious folks who would say that that's a problem with authority of putting the Roman authority above God. And if he had said you shouldn't, then that would be a problem for the Romans. And so he sort of splits the horns of the dilemma and uh, does it in a brilliant way. Yeah. Yeah. And, it's and very what's interesting. also interesting go ahead, go ahead. about that path, about that chapter there's there's like three or four or five of these i can't remember exact number but then that's where he's challenged with what the greatest commandment is which is an intellectual challenge it might not seem like a big mm. intellectual challenge but if we know anything about the old testament and the you know jewish tradition is that they had a lot of commands yeah. <laughs> right a lot of laws and so when this religious um leader is asking Jesus for what's the most important. Again, he's trying to trap him because if he mentions one and neglects others, then he's sort of in trouble. So uh, famously, Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. 
And so that charge to love God with all of our minds that a lot of us talk about um, comes in a section in which Jesus is being challenged hmm. intellectually. And in a way, I think what he's doing is loving God with his mind as he sort of confronts these challenges and so on and intellectually refutes the people that are coming at him. It's, one of his, it's so beautiful to see these things because when Jesus responds in, in that section, uh, there's no follow-up. And you're as a reader, right, like as a reader who's paying attention, you're going to be like, okay, there's a follow-up here. Give to God <laughs> right. what is God's. And somebody should be yelling out, and what's that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And nobody responds to him. Well, um, and they clearly, you know, get bested. I mean, it's like we've all probably been there. Not that this is the goal necessarily for critical thinking is to be able to like refute people, but I think it's part of it, perhaps. Um, right? To be able to give a sort of careful and thoughtful response to someone as they challenge us and so on. But, uh, but yeah, they just sort of leave. <laughs> they don't have a lot to say. And I sure, I sure have been there before where somebody, you know, sizes me up intellectually and I just say, okay, I've had enough of that drubbing. I'm, yeah, I'm good, good to go Good here. stuff. Good stuff. I, 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 yeah. uh, good arguments. And um, page 41, you say Matthew 22 ends by saying, no one dared to question him anymore. Right. Uh, now you're quoting scripture here, but it's very interesting because a lot of times we'll read by these passages. Um, and I, I suppose we don't like sit there and think about it quite a bit and saying, man, Jesus is like a ser serious thinker here yeah. that nobody is actually like people are scared legitimately. Now, that's not yeah. to say it's Jesus intent to go scaring people because right. he very clearly takes on questions, answers them. He's interacting and dealing with the common individual as well as the scholar. Uh, but that they recognize this is a very serious thinker standing in front of them. We better yeah. be careful, right? And these are the scholars. Yeah. You know, these are the sort of like intellectual elites of the day, and they are scared intellectually to engage. And part of it is he, he responds to them this way because they are challenging him. Hmm. You know, so he, he doesn't respond this way when people ask him just questions that clearly have a sort of uh, intellectual honesty to them, he responds this way because they specifically are trying to trap him sort of theologically or intellectually. And so that's why he responds in this way. And then that's why they're scared to come at him. Anymore. Yeah, there's one where you put into kind of a, a syllogism uh, which has to do with uh, a woman who's got, yes. you know, marries all these all these brothers. And here's the way you put it into the syllogism, right? You say, um, I guess premise one, assume for the sake of this argument or the argument, one day there will be a resurrection of the dead. Now, this is asked by people who don't accept the resurrection of the dead, the Sadducees. Yeah. If there is a resurrection from the dead, then it is possible for a woman who has been married to a series of seven brothers to be married to seven brothers at once. Number three, being married to seven brothers at once is absurd. So therefore, there is no resurrection of the dead. Break this down, and then it's very interesting because you you go into a quotation here that Jesus brings up. Uh, what, what does Jesus yeah. do here? Yeah, so this is the reductio, 
or what we call a reductio ad absurdum or reducing to the absurd. And it's where you, this form of argument is where you assume something for the sake of argument. And then what you show is what is entailed by it or sort of implied by it. Uh, and if it entails or implies something absurd or ridiculous, then we reject the assumption. Mm -hmm. And so the Sadducees who don't believe in the resurrection are sort of challenging Jesus this way. Um, and so that's it, it, obviously not the exact way he puts it or the, the way that the, the Matthew 22 puts it. But um, this is kind of a reconstruction in that formalized syllogistic form to sort of see the logic of it, mm -hmm. why it's a problem. Um, and so Jesus's response is one they don't know scripture <laughs> or they don't understand yeah. which again like for an academic that's like a you know taking the glove off and smacking him in the face um and he basically says the idea that people are given in marriage is not true in, in heaven yeah. and so that the the problem doesn't even arise so while they give him this challenge, this reductio ad absurdum, he logically responds by uh, sort of cutting out the... Uh, so he's essentially yeah. saying one of your assumptions is incorrect. Yes, um, how, that, how they're understanding it. Yeah. yeah, that there will be some kind of a marriage in... Yeah, so uh, in the, effect the he's saying premise two is false. Yeah. Um, so that it's not a challenge at the end of the day. And then he goes on to quote a passage out of Exodus of all the yeah. places he quote from, he can quote from. He right. quotes one from Exodus. This, the reason why I bring this up, is, and you observe this in, in, in the book, is that he's very aware of what they actually believe. So he's not yeah. kind of clueless, right? Like, so the modern, I guess, example would be if I'm having a conversation with a Buddhist and say I don't know that there there isn't one kind of Buddhism. There's multiple kind of Buddhism. And before even the conversation gets going, I might want to know, hey, what kind of a Buddhist yeah. are you, right? Like, right. Uh, and then actually know what those sort of Buddhists believe. Like, if that's not in the conversation, if I'm not doing my part as a Christian to study the worldview of other people, if I'm actually going to engage them properly and evangelize and do apologetics properly, then um, I'm not. I'm not being good uh i would say agree with you in here that i'm not thinking christianly like as a christian that's my responsibility if i want my evangelism not only to be effective but to be loving uh towards those uh around me and so jesus quotes from exodus i mean there's so many other places in the bible he can quote from where very simply he just proves the case why exodus so the reason is as i understand it is that the sadducees consider the Pentateuch inspired the first five books of the Bible uh, in the Old Testament. Um, and they don't, wouldn't, you know, so there's other passages, say, in the major and minor prophets that clearly point towards a resurrection, mm -hmm. but they don't consider those to be inspired scripture where they do Exodus. And so it's clear that, and Jesus makes a very subtle argument there that really turns on the tense of the the verbs there, um, and and maybe you can I I might not be able to quote it off the top of my head, but if you want to read that part, uh, 
but he he does that because the Sadducees would consider that to be inspired scripture. Yeah. Um... So he, he in fact in effect says that you know God is the. Yeah, I am and continue to be. Yeah, um, father so, of the. So yeah, so he quoted. Uh, Abraham, I'll, I'll read it here. It's on page thirty-nine. So, so he quoted Exodus three six and made quite a subtle point. Jesus said, "Now concerning the resurrection of the dead, haven't you read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living." Which is uh, Matthew uh, twenty-two thirty-one to thirty-two. Now Jesus' argument here is not immediately obvious, uh, and then you quote J.P. Moreland. Yeah. Uh, where he says he had, I'm skipping a little bit here, but he says he had studied Sad, uh, Sad, Sadducean theology and knew that they did not accept the full authority of the prophets, including uh, Daniel, where he could have quoted. And then he does the verb thing. His argument hinged on the tense of the Hebrew verb. Jesus does not say, I was the God of Abraham, but I am and continue to be the God of Abraham. Yeah. A claim that could be uh, true only if Abraham and others continued to exist. Yeah. So, I mean, there, there's quite a bit of uh, like serious thinking again going on here. Not yeah. only does he know what they believe, but he knows the verb and the usage of it and what's going yes. on in this passage. Uh, I mean, it's, it's really fun to uncover these things and look at it yeah. and say, man, this, this is some serious stuff. And, it's, and again, it's why you, you see these people continually astonished by Jesus in his teaching and his, again, intellectual abilities. Hmm. Um, what can Christians do? Maybe maybe changing kind of uh, yep. directions here. Look, you, you're an academician. You've studied, seems to me that you enjoy school. Um, uh, you, you, you teach right like that that's your life that this is uh, for a good portion of your life you're spending it in a classroom and reading and writing and, and um that's not the case um for most people right so what are those things that christians can do to to develop and be more like jesus uh yeah. in this in this area and way well i think part of what all Christians obviously should do is understand their own views sort of first and foremost. And so mm -hmm. this is the Bible reading and the just understanding what our Christian worldview claims and, and what are, what are Christian principles um, and sort of how to think of life in these terms. But I think here again, like that's not an easy intellectual journey. Like that's that's going to be involve reading and making careful distinctions and sort of getting good at these things. And that's where the critical thinking and logic comes in. But I think for people, I, I'm actually really big on this idea that people should pursue what's interesting to them. Hmm. Um, I don't I don't think we all need to be philosophers. You know, God help us, honestly. Uh, <laughs> I don't think we should all be, like, I'm not that, if I'm honest, not all that interested in science, in various areas of science. Like, there's some some parts that I am, but um, I'm gripped by the philosophical questions, and that's what I'm pursuing. Some people are gripped in other ways, and that's where 
I, I want to say that we are designed to be intellectual. This isn't special in a way just for Christians. I think that Christians should be motivated towards these things precisely because of their Christian worldviews. Hmm. But I really do think like, you know, especially if you look at the sort of Genesis one, the, the creation mandate, you know, this idea that we are called to cultivate and subdue the world. Um, it, that's got a sort of creative aspect to it, um, where we would be going into the world, understanding it, understanding how it works and doing things with it. And that's going to take a lot of intellectual efforts, mm. uh, in a variety of different ways. And so I think that's part of what we're designed for, honestly. Uh, and so what it looks like for an individual, I just think it depends on what their interests are. Uh, there's a lot of people I know that are, at least they would say, they're not cut out for the classroom. You know, that's just not their personality, their temperament, and so on. And that's fine, because they're some of the most brilliant people I've met, and you know, in, a, in some cases. Um, they may have expertise in a trade or a, a craft or something, or maybe it's sports trivia. I, I don't know. You know what I mean? Like people are intellectual sort of by their very nature. And so what the vision here is, is that you would understand your Christian worldview to a sufficient degree that you're able to sort of pursue these things in life. And that's why, again, thinking critically and thinking Christianly kind of come together this way, because it takes a lot of reflection to sort of make those connections and figure out what it looks like for us to pursue God with all of who we are um, hmm. and bring our Christian worldviews to bear. Because you've quoted Dallas Willard um, and because I'm a fanboy um, <laughs> and, I, and, and because I have certain personality, like, like my personality is set up a certain way and <clears throat> for various reasons but um at certain dispositions how do you think critically without being like a cynic and just becoming mm. just nasty because that, that like for me i i try to refrain from any kind of an online discussion forum yes. facebook comments twitter definitely right very rarely do i comment on things but it, because I just don't see it as healthy, it's it's probably not good for me anyway. So I just kind of right. read something and, and move on. But <clears throat> so I guess um, developing these abilities where you can critically think, and let's just say as a Christian, I can look at an, a certain argument and then say, this is bad. Christians shouldn't use this. Yeah. Um, I don't think it's sound. I don't think it's valid, whatever. I right? like go through all the logical kind of steps to it and then say, it's not a good argument. I'm not for it. And then know that whenever you're in a conversation with someone and somebody says, oh, yeah, Christian gave me this argument. And you go, yeah, I'm a Christian and I don't agree with that argument either. I mean, it's pretty bad. So yeah. without kind of becoming nasty in, in, in the sort of world that we exist in kind of produces this for some really weird reason. Yeah. What do you do? Yeah, I think that – so a, a later chapter, you may not got there yet. I have not. Uh, is uh, – on the virtues, intellectual virtues. And what I talk about there is this worry. It's that the worry you brought up. And that is that we get all this, like um, all these tools, but we don't know how to use them. Mm. Right. So I use the illustration of having like a shed full of uh, construction tools 
<laughs> but you know it's going to be dangerous and and it can be dangerous to get all this logical tools so to speak or tools of critical thinking and not know how to use them well so and, and these are not isolated things so the way in which say aristotle and others would think of the intellectual virtues is in part it's using it well and in good ways but it's also helps us to know better and come to truth in various ways and so for example like an intellectual virtue that i talk about is open-mindedness mm. now a, a virtue especially in the sort of aristotelian tradition is always going to be that mean or the middle um and what i mean by that is that you can ramp up any virtue and it's not going to be a virtue anymore and so being open-minded uh chesterton has a great quote about uh we're not supposed to be open-minded any more than we're supposed to be open-mouthed i'm sort of butchering it but this is the kind of idea like it sounds like food in yeah <laughs> when we put food in if we're just open mouth the whole time the food's going to fall right back out so our minds are should be open but when we find truth we're supposed to close on that mm. truth uh and that's an important guardrail for us um it always strikes me that the jewish leaders of jesus's day had the messiah right there in their mm. midst but they missed it because they had this sort of preconceived you know idea or assumption what the messiah is supposed to be like what he's supposed to do what he's not supposed to do and they missed it um and so jesus talks about having ears to hear and eyes to see there's a kind of open-mindedness to that there's a kind of intellectual virtue that we should have where we give an ear towards claims people make uh but we evaluate those things we don't just have a gaping wide open mind to everything that could come along we find truth I mean, sort of wherever we find truth, we hang on to it. And that's some of the other virtues that I talk yeah. about, like intellectual prudence, where we, we think carefully about things and intellectual trust, intellectual courage, huh. where when we do find truth, we hang on to it, even if it's not socially acceptable and that sort of thing. So anyway, I have a whole chapter on this of the intellectual well, virtues. I'll get there. And, I'll get yeah, there. You'll, you'll get you there. know, I like this because uh, the, the Internet is, is this funny place. Uh, yes. Uh, place. where like people make these videos and they're just not true and i'll give a couple of examples in the last um, um i think matt uh, barnett red pen logic right like so yeah, he'll do tim these barnett, things where yeah. he's like tim sorry not matt tim tim will respond to like these tiktok videos of people saying very silly stuff uh and it's just like and they're being watched by millions and millions of people and then yesterday i saw um David Wood had Bart, er Bart Ehrman on and okay, he, yeah. he showed him a video from this Islamic thinker where the guy's kind of just saying this historically very inaccurate things. And he's a respected guy and he's talking about like how Alexander the Great started the Catholic Church and that sure, it pre-existed Jesus somehow, like all this crazy stuff. And then Bart Ehrman, Bart Ehrman is just like laughing. He's like, this is nuts. It's, it's crazy yeah. that somebody would say this. And but it's the sort of place, right? Like where you can cut something up and then share it, and then next thing you know, millions of people are watching it. Um, 
so like I've interacted, for example, with uh, with a movement called the Hebrew, Hebrew Israelite movement, um, and there's various forms of this, uh, and there's kind of a European form of it, and then an American form of it where it's very predominant amongst African Americans, and now it's being exported to Africa, Western Africa, and these guys are essentially saying that they're the real Hebrews, they're the real Jews that the Bible speaks about. And then, but you got to do all sorts of intellectual kind of maneuvering in order to agree with their conclusions. Right. Uh, and if you don't, if you don't buy into the various conspiracies, then it just, it falls apart. Um, mm-hmm. it's not, it, it doesn't make sense. So it's very important that we develop those things. A couple Absolutely. of questions before we end for you. Okay. Uh, what would you say? And you don't, I mean, these are kind of randomly thrown out there, but wh- okay. what what is the best alternative to Christianity in in your opinion? I guess I would probably be a deist of some sort or other. Um, so if I, you know, if you know, sort of the First Corinthians fifteen, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then our faith is in vain. Mm-hmm. I think that he really sort of like raises the stakes on things to say, like, if this historical event didn't happen, then don't believe it. Don't believe in Christianity. Would you sort of fall into a place where you're like, God exists, monotheism is true. I I can at least rationally conclude that God would be a good God and all powerful and all these parts, but no special revelation, kind of all the other ones are contradictory. Something like that, or at least be very sort of agnostic on whether or not a particular religious tradition was was the right one yeah religious kind of the exclusivism kind of makes you conclude in that uh, that these religions kind of exclude one another because they contradict each other or they just have historical analogy yes so not a pluralism but a kind of agnosticism where i just say i don't i don't know what the right story is here but i I, I would be, still be a theist <clears throat> for sure. <clears throat> now, here's because you're an epistemologist. I, I want to. Would, would you be an agnostic of the sort that would say, I don't know, or it is impossible to know? Like, we don't have access uh, to that knowledge. I, I don't think it's impossible to know on, on these things. And so that's. I think I, but I, I know enough about the sort of various other traditions. And I'm. I, it's hard for me to take them even seriously sometimes. You know what yeah. I mean? Because, yeah, no, I <laughs> for example, they don't solve the fundamental human condition that we have, right? We're, we, we are sinners. We, I, I fail all the time. I, you know, I, I try to love my wife and kids and well and do the right thing. And I don't always get there. And so, I need something that addresses my human condition and other religious traditions telling me to do this new set of things to do, I don't think actually addresses my human condition. Hmm. So it's hard for me to even see why, say, following the kind of uh, pillars of Islam addresses the fact that I'm a sinner. Okay. You know what I mean? That I'm, yeah, I'm no, sort of alienated no, I get it. from God and that sort of thing. Now, in the book, you make a comment that Christianity accounts for logic really well, as opposed to yeah. what do you mean by something like that? Really quickly, uh, if if so, it could be done. You're right. I think that the existence of logic itself ends up being an argument for God. 
So it's sometimes called the argument from reason. I spent a whole chapter on this too. Um, and what I'm trying to do there is to say that the certainly a sort of theistic worldview is necessary to understand logical principles. And I know that's a pretty radical mm -hmm. claim that I just made, but that's what I argue for because the a logical principle is a necessary truth. Um, it is an eternal truth. It's not like it's something that has come into existence mm -hmm. or whatever. It's true anywhere and at any time. And so we need something that explains that. And I'm really going through this quickly, but because uh, no, I, I, yeah, I yeah. talk about other worldviews and how like the naturalist might try to do that or the atheistic sort of Platonist might do. Don't that. go into too much detail. We want people to buy the book. Yeah, that's right. That's I, right. I, I want to give I, it all away. I, I, I'll spoil the finish. And it's that logic points us to the existence of God. And okay. I think it's a God that's consistent with the, the biblical God. So you're um, essentially saying logic is not a created thing. It's kind of like an extension or comes from God's person himself. That's like, right. Like For love. Me, I would ground that in God himself, that yeah. it's a, a property of God's mind. Okay. Um, this is sort of a silly question, but I think they're, they're, uh, I want you to deal with it. Uh, does the devil shiver when he is cold? <laughs> I would say yes. Okay. Why is that? I'm I interested have no okay. Well, if the devil is cold, well, maybe I'll take it back. It, if he's not material, then what's doing the shivering? Yeah. There's an assumption that the devil is material here in order to be cold. Would, would this be sort of like a tautology? I, that's what that's kind of what I was first yeah. forwards to say. If he's cold, then yes, he's shivering. But if shivering requires us to be sort of embodied, then I guess it just depends. So like metaphysical things don't get cold. Yeah, or like um, non-physical yeah. soulish, you know, so, yeah. minds. Like something. he, you know, he wouldn't have a weight to him. Right. Okay. That makes sense. There you go. Hey, that, that's <laughs> that a question, sense. but you didn't know. You didn't think we can get all crazy philosophical. Change my mind. Yeah, that's right <laughs> we, there. we can get. All, there you go. Intellectual virtues. Uh, yeah. Practice <laughs> right in front of you. Um, well, um, thank you. Uh, this this has been uh, this has been a pleasure to to have you on. We've been trying to get uh, to have you on. Yeah. Uh, for quite some time, but you've been you've you've, um, you've been preoccupied writing books i guess yes uh, and i yes. say that and i want to end with you have another book coming out yes okay and that one is called what it's called wandering toward god finding faith amid doubts and big questions okay so what, what is the purpose kind of where where are you going with that book so this book definitely you know sort of uh, complements the logic book but um it's definitely more of a popular level book. And so it's presupposes no knowledge whatsoever. It's not one that's going to be used in a classroom necessarily, mm -hmm. maybe, but it's not designed that way. Um, and it's basically just saying that um, faith and doubts, I think are consistent states. That is to say that when we place our faith in someone we also have this sort of intellectual side where we're trying to work out what to believe, what not to believe, and 
that's going to create oftentimes doubts and that sort of thing. But and as Christians, we're often sort of um, worried about that. But what I say is that we should lean into those doubts, mm-hmm. investigate, and that's going to lead us to truth one way or the other. And so it's a, it's a very honest book that I, I, I hope at least that it's uh, trying to say that we should, we should ask these questions and we should, do, we should be open um, and struggle through some of these things because there's some challenges to, to yeah. Christian belief and so on. And so, but I have found that as I have encountered these things and I've gone through periods of doubt, I lean into those. I s- seek out answers. Um, I find Christianity to to have the resources to answer them. Yeah. Um, when can we expect that book to come out? So that is uh, at this point scheduled for an October release. Okay. Well, there you go, guys. Uh, your fall presents. Uh, you can you can get those. <laughs> we'll put the links. Uh, I'll put the various links in the description box for the books that you have written uh, that people can buy. Usually, they're just going to be on Amazon, and then your website will be in there as well so people can uh, check it out and, and see what's going on. Final question will be done. Uh, just because I think it kind of when you're speaking about doubt, uh, it's important. Were you raised in a Christian home? Were you kind of raised in the church or not as you've struggled with these things and kind of come to your own? Yeah, no, I I was raised in a very Christian home. Uh, mo- both of my parents were in ministry and it was a ministry that was started by my great-great-grandfather. And so, yeah, it goes back, I'm like fifth generation. Wow. And so there was a lot of pressure on me to believe in certain ways, because literally, you know, this whole ministry and everything. So I didn't really question seriously until seminary. That's unique, isn't it? It was actually at (laughs) Loyola that I really seriously questioned my faith because I was sort of sitting around, I don't know what your experience was. And this was really before the, the philosophy MA philosophy degree, mm. but um, I was, I just felt like we weren't taking these questions very seriously. Mm. And I, it sort of led me to think like, have I ever taken these questions very seriously? And I began to really start asking the questions and I was really, struggling for for a time but it was like i said i mean it's a pretty great place to struggle with your faith right there at biola you know there's some good folks around there to check in with and so i was able to walk through those things but what i what was so striking was that i found that my faith grew and that i'm my faith is better grounded because i questioned and leaned into my doubts. Yeah. I mean, that's been my experience. I mean, I wasn't raised in a Christian home, but that's been my experience in that uh, whenever I came across one of these things that were really challenging, especially when I, in Bible college, I left, I read quite a bit of material um, kind of from people who were very progressive, didn't take the Bible as the word of God, or at least like maybe partially, and reading their arguments. And I was like, oh, there's some challenging stuff here. I got to deal with it. And And then actually dealing with it. And then doing that main philosophy, I came across some arguments and I'm like, this stuff's convincing. Yeah. <laughs> if it's convincing, I got to quit my job. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> but uh, and then being in a setting where, you know, there's intellectually bright folks who take this stuff seriously and they're yeah. able to break it down and answer it uh, was great. And I, I've had the same experience. My my faith has grown and it's developed. 
and it's been good, I would say, just generally for myself, but also for my church community. That's because that's, yeah. you know, I live in that community. I exist in my church community. And uh, it's been great because other people, you know, every three months or so, every two months, someone comes up and says, I got this question. And you're like, I've thought about yeah. that. <laughs> you know, and here's a book, powerful. here's an article, right? Like, here you go. Yeah, that's powerful because it's not just like, where you say, well, you know, Lee Strobel says this and Norm Geisler says that mm -hmm. and JP Moreland says this. It's like, man, that's a good question. And I've really deeply wrestled with that. That's really, uh, you know, because we have these sort of apologetics debates where we sort of throw grenades at each other and launch these attacks or whatever. They do almost no good in a sense of like yeah. actually convincing people they just everybody on either side thinks their guy won you know what yeah. i mean in these sort of formal debates but when you actually have a conversation with someone and you approach it with that sort of heart where you say i've really doubted my faith over this issue it's a really good question that's really disarming and the the barriers kind of come down and you can speak to each other's hearts in a way that's really wonderful and I've learned so much from that in yeah. my own, you know, in my own challenges in faith and so on. Like I'm probably more conservative than I started in some ways, <laughs> uh, but I, it's thoughtful. I hope, I hope. Yeah, yeah, it is. And, and um, especially for you, because your kids are like in their teens, right? Uh, preteens two teenagers two okay four. yeah because that's you, it's not just like writing these books and then you go on with your yeah. academic career it's you're at home and your kids are like that you got to explain this stuff to them. yeah even if i don't set out to have them be the audience they're the audience in yeah. a lot of ways yeah no oh, that's brilliant well thank you so much for for joining me today and having this discussion i mean again just going back to the book it's from whatever i've read of it okay i got it a week ago um it's i i, I travis i want to commend you man because this is like i said uh i i haven't read like a i don't know a trillion books or something like that but this is one of a kind in the way it's set up and the way it develops the the arguments why christians ought to think christianly but also gives you a, a pretty good i guess development of logic doing very good logic in there without someone having to read a logic textbook like the one you coded with a very long title to it, but right. or anything like it, right? Like uh, because yeah. that might just be overwhelming. But someone can walk away from this book uh, having a pretty good grasp of basic logic, having a good grasp of why Christians should be serious about that and think well, and even with it, having a good grasp of some arguments for God's existence. So, yeah. so it, it does a very good job. Well done. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm enjoying that. it, and you're a good, really good writer. Um, some some philosophers are great thinkers, but not very good writers and <laughs> uh, we have to struggle through their their, their yes. writing but you're, yes. you're a good writer so i appreciate your work thank you for joining me hopefully we'll do this some other time with, on some other yeah. issue love to so blessings yeah to you. thank you so much arthur i really appreciate that yeah. god bless you take care well everybody uh thank you for for joining us i really appreciate your attention and if you're watching the replay on this god bless you thank you or if you're listening to it on audio somewhere uh, hopefully this has been good for you. It's 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 been encouraging, and you got some information out of it that you didn't um, have before. And uh, we will see you next time. With that said, God bless you. Take care. Be well. Mm -hmm.